Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. So we are back in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and um, I don't know if it was a good idea or not, but I I put a lot more verses together for us this week, okay? Because we don't want to be in this book uh, for three years. We, we want to study other parts of God's Word as well. So we're going to try to make it through a large section of text this morning. And in order to do that, we're going to start off like we have the last couple of weeks and look at some of our big themes and look at some big ideas that we're going to focus on today. So three themes that we're going to be touching on every week in Mark's gospel, the first of which is a king. We're going to be seeing who that king is and what a king looks like, how a king looks different than what we would maybe picture him as and is doing things differently than what we would picture him to be doing. And that king's kingdom and also how it differs from what we may think. The fact that the kingdom is present and yet it's not here. Right, And so it's this magical disappearing act and reappearing act, and we're going to see how that plays into what it means for us as a church body. And then lastly, discipleship, the constant and continual call to faith and following and learning. All of these things are tied up into discipleship. Last week, our big idea went something like this, that Jesus approaches us. We saw this in him approaching four men that he was calling into ministry with him. Four men that he was calling to be his disciples that were, yes, literally going to follow him around, but were also going to listen to his teachings. And we're also going to take his teachings in such a way that they could teach them as well. But Jesus approaches us continually calling us to follow him. And this is a little bit of a playoff last week, but if you have a bulletin, that's great. If you need one, you're welcome to come right up here and grab it. Um, Here's our big idea for this week. Jesus approaches us, and his kingdom comes near in power. That sounds big, but we're going to see in the text this week that it is a big thing, despite the fact that it may look different for us here today. So let's get started. Verse 21, And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, this is easy for Jesus, for him to be teaching. Why? Well, because John's gospel reminds us of this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We see in John's gospel that Jesus is the word. Uh, that so closely is the word related to who God is and his character that one of the persons of God 
is able to carry around with him the name, the Word. So when Jesus stands up to teach, it should be no surprise to us, as it was a surprise to them, what happens next. And they were astonished at his teaching. I don't think there's ever anything that I've preached that you've probably went home and say, wow, I was astonished by Wade's preaching today. You probably went home and said, wow, I've heard that before said much better. Or, wow, I've heard that before said in a less weird way. Okay? You've probably went home like that before. But you probably have not gone home saying, Wow, I was astonished by that, and yet Jesus' hearers were. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. See, Jesus is not only the word, but he is the authority of God. We see in Genesis 1, and we see throughout the entire text of the scripture, that when God speaks, things happen. Jesus is God, we affirm that, and when Jesus speaks, things happen. So, why are we picking on the scribes here? Why must we say that not as the scribes? Well, who were the scribes? Yeah, they were theologians, they were lawyers, they knew the law, they taught the law, they added to the law, they made the law thicker, they made the law more difficult for people to follow. They had tradition upon tradition upon tradition that they carried along with them on their back like a donkey carries a yoke. And so the scribes came and they taught with power, a power not their own, the word of God which they added to and they added weight to and it burdened people. But Jesus didn't just speak with power. Right? I could stand up here in a loud voice and say, Jesus is Lord, and you could say, well, yeah, Wade spoke powerfully this morning. Because I affirmed something was true and I said it loudly. But Jesus didn't just speak with power. That power had something behind it, and that is authority. They were astonished because Jesus did not just speak uh, the same thing that they had heard every single week, but they heard something brand new. What was that thing that was brand new? The kingdom of God is at hand. This is the good news that Jesus is preaching. And we've already studied what that means. And we've seen it played out in the calling of the disciples. What that means is there's going to be a guarantee that your sins are forever forgiven. And there's going to be a guarantee of what we've been studying uh, in 1 Peter, right? Remember in 1 Peter, what were we? We were handpicked exiles, right? We were handpicked by God to be exiled out into this world, sharing the good news, staying faithful to what Jesus called us to. But what do exiles need? We need to be brought back into the land, right? And we studied in Isaiah together the, this strange phrase that there was going to be a new exodus. God leading his people out of a foreign land into a land that he has created just for them. And last week in Mark's gospel, we saw this new exodus worded in a slightly different way because what did Jesus do? He said to Peter and to Andrew, I will make you fishers of men. If we went back to Jeremiah, we would see that to be a fisher of men meant that they were handpicked to be people that were going and grabbing people 
out from exile and bringing them into this new land. Bringing them to salvation through Jesus Christ. So this good news that Jesus is preaching um, is complex. It's complex. And yet, we are not told... I mean, yeah, we learned in the first couple of verses of the book, but we're not told exactly what the content of Jesus' teaching is here. Isn't that frustrating? (laughs) Right? It's like on the road um, back from Emmaus when Jesus appears in secret to two of his disciples and he explains what Jesus meant uh, according to the law and the prophets. Literally, everything that happened in the Old Testament, how it was pointing towards Jesus, and we don't have any details about what that is. Right? In the same way, here we have a teaching that has authority, and yet we don't see any of the content of that teaching. We don't know what's inside this beautiful packaging. So what's the point here? It's not necessarily the content of the teaching, which, which we've already learned a little bit about. But it's what this authority means for his teaching. Verse 23, and immediately... And immediately there was in the in okay. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, "What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God." Okay. We see here that Jesus drives out darkness. We're going to look at that in more detail here in just a second. But it's interesting because this this demon, this evil spirit, this devil, as the uh, KJV says, which I like that translation, okay, it's fun. Uh, (laughs) um, This devil knows who Jesus is. Why? Well, there could be many reasons. Maybe Jesus had read there in that synagogue before. That's possible. Uh, Maybe... It's as we just read in John that Jesus was the one actively creating all things, right? He upholds the universe by the power of his hand, Hebrews. And so it's no surprise to us that this demon, this evil spirit, this devil should know who Jesus is. And also it's no surprise because even though we didn't get a good picture of it in Mark's gospel, in Jesus' temptation out in the wilderness, what do we see? We see, the, we see Satan, right? The leader of the whole troop. And he's offering Jesus everything that is already Jesus's. It's like, you know what? Why don't you just take a bite of that apple a little bit sooner than what you're supposed to, Jesus? It's fine. It's fine. And yet, Jesus stays true to who he is and remains perfect uh, for our salvation and for us. But these words here, uh, he cried out. And then also, that's in verse 23. Then in verse 26, we also see that the unclean spirit comes out of this man and cries out again. And these phrases in the Gospels, that's the same word that's used every time. For when an exorcism, right? This is a, the scary word that we use for this. An exorcism happens. There's a crying out. But it's also the same word that Jesus uses. It's the same word that's used to describe Jesus when he cries out to Lazarus. Come out. 
It's the same word that is used to describe Jesus' words on the cross, crying out to the Father. So what is this? This is pain. Jesus crying out to his Father. Jesus in tears over Lazarus. These are painful cries. Why? Because this demon's days are numbered, and he knows it. He's had free reign, but no longer is that going to be the case. So Jesus drives out darkness, and darkness fears him. But we also see this. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. See, Jesus silences the accuser. Jesus silences the accuser. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we read this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. All words that should be familiar to us here. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Who is this accuser? This is Satan. Who is this demon? One of his minions. What is going on in this possession? We can say that. This is a possession of a person. This evil spirit in some way has control of the person. Probably not like a puppet, but something like, uh, much like what Satan did to Adam and Eve in the garden. No, take the fruit, it's fine. Just like he did to Jesus. Yeah, all this stuff's yours already. Go ahead and take it. Right? Probably saying to this man, no. You know what? Sin is good. Go ahead and do it. Do it. Do it to the best of your ability. Or saying to the man, yeah, you are awful. And you can't be made clean. And your sacrifices do mean nothing to the Lord. And you do need all these extra rules that the scribes teach if you even want to see salvation one day. This is probably what this demon was doing. But we see that Jesus silences that accuser. Now, I don't usually do this. I don't usually do graphs and charts and things like this. Um, So I made it as unexact as I could because I knew that people would like that, okay? Uh, (laughs) But we see in Scripture a a progression of the defeat of evil. Um, I guarantee you that this evil spirit knew this, and I guarantee you that at Jesus' temptation, Satan remembered this. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Right, that there would be a seed of the woman that would come, that he would crush the head of the serpent, that he would destroy the serpent, though he would be wounded for a while, though his heel would be wounded. So Satan knew at that temptation, this is my last ditch effort. I'm going to throw all the good things that are already Jesus's back at him because this is my last chance. Yet, From this defeat promised back in Genesis 3.15, we see the defeat realized. 
that, is, that it's made real to the demons, to Satan, both in Jesus' temptation and then here in our first exorcism of Mark's gospel, of which we're going to see five in Mark's gospel. But we also know the final defeat of Satan. We get a glimmer of it here in Revelation 12, but we're going to see the fullest picture of that in Revelation chapter 19, uh, when Satan and all of his minions and hordes are defeated. And then finally in chapter 20, when Satan, when the head of that serpent is crushed. See, Satan is described, uh, as we read about in 1 Peter, as a roaring lion seeking, seeking someone to devour. Uh, he's a snake that turns into a dragon. He's the ruler of this world. He is the God of this age. He is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is the father of lies. He is the accuser of the saints. It should be no surprise to us that this man was there in the temple that day or that Satan was accusing one of these people that were worshiping in his temple. It should be no surprise to us that we hear reports of things like this throughout the mission field, throughout the world, throughout everywhere. We don't see it in the Western world as much because we're too distracted by other fun things like TV and cell phones and all of that. We don't need someone to tempt us because we're doing it all on our own, right? <laughs> and yet, we do know that there is a ruler of this world, a God of this age, a spirit that is at work in this world. And he uses all of these things to drive us off course. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 27, And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A, a new teaching? With authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And again, we see that Jesus is the authority of God. He is the word. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Literally, Jesus goes viral, Right? He starts popping up everywhere in people's conversations. This is all happening in one day, too. That's what I love, again, about Mark's gospel. Immediately, immediately, straight after that, straight away, okay? Uh, this is all happening in one day, this part. But Jesus goes viral. Everyone starts hearing about him, and we're going to see what comes of that here at the end of this passage. And immediately, verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. All right, let's slow down for a second. Immediately, immediately, um, we're going to miss something here that isn't so important, but it is interesting. Because uh, oftentimes we think about the disciples as just this band of nomads. Uh, <laughs> these people wandering around in the desert with Jesus. Uh, they got no attachments. Well, of course it was easy to pick on single young men that had nothing to hold them back to where they... No. Right, we've already learned a little bit about Peter. Uh, we've learned that he was probably related to Barnabas, who's related to Mark, who's writing down this gospel, probably Peter's words. We also see here 
um, that Peter was married, either still to a wife or that his wife had died. We don't know. But here we see that he has a mother-in-law. Okay? He has a mother-in-law, so he's married. Also, Peter and Andrew own a home. They own a home, and they stay there. Also, actually later in Mark's Gospel, I think it's chapter 8, we're going to see they own a second home by the sea. Not a holiday home, it's actually just where they fish from. Okay, It's more like an apartment, a tiny little apartment in the city. A little flat that you go to when you have to stay over, right? That's what this other second home is all about. But Peter and Andrew aren't totally detached from things. Wait a second, they left their nets? Yeah, they did leave their nets. They did, and you know what? They still have other responsibilities, and they're taking care of that. Now, um, yeah, no, we'll get there in just a second. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Andrew and Simon and James and John. So they're seeing miracles. They're hearing his teaching. Um, they believe they have now followed the right guy. And what do they do immediately? Well, Jesus, we have a problem too here. Um, the problem is that Simon's mother-in-law is ill and she has a fever. Uh, this seems to be the, the text, if we were to read it more literally, says she has a fire. Okay, so it's a bad fever. It's something that she can't shake. Hydrating isn't taking care of this thing, okay? So Jesus comes and he takes care of it. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Now, despite what it might sound like, Jesus did not heal her so that she would start serving them, okay? <laughs> um, uh, Tom, you know, I didn't realize that was the role of the mother-in-law, that uh, she was supposed to be serving everyone in the household. But now, I'll talk to Nancy this afternoon and see what we can do about that. No, that wasn't the role. That wasn't the role. Why, why then would, would Mark throw this little detail in that she got healed and then she started serving or ministering to them? Why would he throw that in? I'll tell you why. Because when God graciously descends, when he approaches you and heals you, when he saves you from whatever it is, something small like this fever or something big like our sin and our guilt and our shame and our helplessness and our fear, we have no other choice but to serve him. We have no other choice but to serve him. And I think that is why this detail is thrown in there. We also see that Jesus is not withholding. Jesus is not withholding. Yeah, he just did some pretty amazing stuff, right? He taught well. He healed a person of an of a evil spirit. But he is not withholding. In fact, he desires to heal. He desires to rescue us. He reaches out his hand for Peter's mother-in-law. He touches her. Did he need to touch her for her to be healed? No. We see other uh, miracles happen where there is no touch involved. Where there's hardly a word involved. It just happens. But Jesus desires to heal, and I think that's the importance of this gesture of the hand and the helping her up. 
verse 32 to 34. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Okay, we're getting to a sticky situation now. It might not seem like it. That seems pretty simple. Uh, But if we were to go back to verse 21, we would read that this was the Sabbath day. This was the day of rest set aside for God's people to worship him and to collect themselves. And rather not just collect themselves, but to find themselves in him. Uh, One thing that you were not supposed to be doing was working on this day. Okay, but during this time, these scribes, what they did, they added law to this. They added law to this. See, and we're going to be talking about this later this year. Um, We're going to go through a three-part series of the law and the gospel. That is, God's rules for us, good rules for us, and how that relates to the good news that he gives to us. But here we're seeing a confusion of the two. See, these good laws that God put down for his people were supposed to be pointing his people to the good news. But instead they didn't. People kept adding to it. They kept saying, well, no, working, uh, you should probably prepare your meals the day before. Uh, You probably should not spit on the ground because that's like plowing the earth, separating the earth, which is like farming. You shouldn't do that. Um, You should not be doing what you do throughout the normal week. So if you are a, uh, if you're someone that cooks for someone else, don't cook. If you're someone that cleans, don't clean. Okay, that sounds pretty good, actually, okay. Uh, (laughs) uh, What was Jesus doing? Jesus was doing his job, right? He's preaching. He's healing. This is, this is not good. This is not good. He's working on the Sabbath, people. Hold on, didn't we just confess together that for us he kept the law? All right, see, what we're talking about there, when we say that Jesus kept the law, the good laws that God created for his people to point them to the good news. Not these extra laws that the Pharisees and the scribes pile on. Not the extra law that we pile on. So what is this little detail at sundown? Look, everyone else that was coming to Jesus was thoroughly convinced by this extra law that was piled on top of them. They knew that they would be in sin if they went to Jesus and got healed because this was like work and asking someone else to work. Yet Jesus had already worked a miracle that day, two of them, in fact, before sundown. Does this mean Jesus is in sin? No. But culturally speaking, he would have been seen as being in sin. And culturally speaking, everyone was held tight by this power of this age, this cultural force that told them what you're doing is wrong and you're damned for it. That can be anything for us. It can be many things for us. It's when we read God's law today as Christians that have the good news and we add to it. Um, or it's to say, like, look, everyone knows here you don't have to come dressed beautifully to church, all right? I have some good friends. Um, I saw them last week, and man, they looked beautiful. They looked like they were ready to walk down the red carpet 
he was dressed all white, white shoes. I didn't even shake his hand because I was afraid I was going to get him dirty, okay? It's fine. It's fine. Until you got to wear all white to go to church and white shoes. This is the law that we're adding on to ourselves that we don't need, that Jesus never intended for us to have. We do this all the time in the church. But Jesus wasn't breaking law. He was breaking cultural law. It would be like me going to my friend's church and wearing shorts. Right? <laughs> Which I would probably do. Okay? And I would be breaking cultural law. Does this damn me? No. Is Jesus in sin here? No, he is not. But everyone else was held captive by this cultural law that said that they would be if they allowed a work to be done on their behalf. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. We saw this before. The whole country went out to go get baptized by John, right? Um, did literally the whole country get baptized? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> Here, did the whole city come to Jesus? Word spread fast. Yeah. Everyone who desired to come and thought that they needed to come see Jesus came. So we have more healing of sicknesses. We have more casting out of demons. But here's an interesting detail. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. What did the last demon try to do? Right? He said, oh, holy one of God, Jesus of Nazareth. And some say that back in this day and throughout Greek and Roman times, uh, if someone was speaking the name of, of the other person or uh, one God was speaking the name of another God. It was like saying, ha, I have control over you now. Okay? And that's true. That's true. And so we have that going on. But then we have this other thing going on. Jesus is telling the demons not to speak, right? He told the other one to be silent, and he forced these ones to be silent. Why would he do that? And why, as we're going to see later on, would Jesus tell people that he heals? Don't tell anyone about this. Why? Well, it's a really interesting thing, and this is what theologians call the messianic secret. That sounds important, right? Uh, well, it is important. It is important. We read elsewhere in Scripture that at just the right time, Christ died for our sins. See, even in the midst of Jesus being tempted and Satan saying, hey, these good things that are yours, go ahead and take them. In a similar way, Satan's trying to get Jesus to say, yes, I am the Savior. Why? This would bring down the heat, right? This would bring down the police. This would bring down the government on him. This would bring down the teachers and the scribes on him. Satan wants to speed this process up, but we read elsewhere in Scripture that at just the right time, Christ died for our sins to redeem us. It's not time yet. Why do these devils need to be silent? They need to be silent. Because as Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still weak at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. And it's not time yet. We see there on verse 34, the best way that I can say it is, there is an authority or a power over people that is not of God. And Jesus removes and replaces that authority, that power. How does he do that? He preaches the good news to us. We hear the good news that we are saved, that we are redeemed, that we are safe in him. That we have been made new by the Holy Spirit. There's many more things that we could say this morning. Um, I think as we go on and we see more of these exorcisms, more of these casting out of evil spirits, we'll have more time to address what that means for us in this day. Um, one song that I, that I love, though I, I struggle to sing it, uh, you'll know the words to this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. As we saw in that timeline, the defeat of evil is certain. It's a time that is set aside. It's a time that was promised. It's a time that has taken place and will continue to take place. In Romans, uh, we read this. uh, Paul saying, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you uh, also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, For it is, what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This old authority of cultural law, piggybacking on God's good law, is replaced in people's lives. Is replaced by something new. Good news. What's our big idea again? Jesus approaches us. Jesus went to people. He healed them. People came to Jesus, and he came close to them and touched them and healed them. He cast out the evil from inside of them. This good news that is the gospel replaces this bad news of this extra weight of this law, of this authority that we carry around with us. I'm going to pray for us now. Jesus approaches us and his kingdom comes near in power. How do we see his kingdom coming near? Through the good news of the gospel. It's not here to stay, but it will be one day. And it's going to make all things new. Let's pray. Dear Father God, you are our protector. You are our rescuer. You are a promise maker and a promise keeper. You are the one who we rely upon in times of trouble. 
when we need you to lead us away from despair, when we are tempted to give up resting in you and turn back, turn back in on ourselves and find comfort in our sin and in our worldly claims. God, it's in those times that you guide us like lost sheep back to the truth of your word and back towards the blessings that we have in knowing that we belong to you. Back to the knowledge that we are forgiven and cared for by a loving Father. God, we know that even those of us who are here today and we are certain of our salvation because of Christ's death on the cross for us. Those of us that know the comfort that is offered in Christ. Those of us who in the midst of of hope being lost, know that we can look to the cross. Know that you have provided a way to rid us of our sin. Know that you have covered over our weakness. Know that you have given forgiveness once and for all. Know that you have blessed us with faith and repentance to daily embrace. It leads to forgiveness. Even for those of us that know that, we can be overcome by our enslaving sin and be tormented by the accusations of Satan. Our great sins can be brought to our memory. Our pettiness and our spite and our seeking uh, approval from those around us can get in the way of our knowledge of you and how we know about the work of Jesus on our behalf. But God, you have not left us without defense. You have given us armor to stand protected and firm in the middle of trial. You have given us the treasure that is grace. You have given us the good news in your son, Jesus Christ. He has approached us. You have brought your kingdom near in power. You have sent your word who without fail has freed us from Satan, sin, death, and hell. God, we thank you for Jesus' atoning and perfect work on the cross. We thank you that we have a gift that we not only hold as a precious truth, but that we are given to share with others. God, I ask for each of us that we would not neglect your word. I ask that you would protect each of us. We ask that you would draw us near and that we would daily rest in and rely upon the perfect person of Jesus and his perfecting work on the cross. God, if there is ever a time when we open up your word and we feel only condemned, God, if there is ever a time that we as Christians come here on a Sunday and I have preached something that causes only condemnation, God, I have sorely failed and we have sorely misunderstood your word. God, for those of us that are saved, we know that even in the midst of looking at your law, and being condemned by it, we have the good news of the gospel. We have 
the promise that we are currently redeemed and one day will be fully redeemed. Lord, let us, let us never walk away from this place or any prayer or any picking up of your word and reading it and feel only condemned, but let us always feel the blessing of your son, Jesus Christ, the grace that he has shown to us in our lives, the good news that has been preached to us. God, we love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. And remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.